0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I ask that, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he formed in. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does God reply to him? I have kept for myself seven thousand men who have not found the need to fail. So too, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The lot obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spiritual suit, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and retribution to them. Let their eyes be dark so that they cannot see. Then they the Father, right. we ask your blessing, God, the word seek to unpack uh, the meaning, and seek to hear from you, and pray that you would, part of your spirit, make those words <laughs> to us, ask you in Christ's name, amen. If there's one thing that I know by now, it is that I cannot change the way okay? you feel. I can't change the way you feel. You're going to feel the way you feel. This is actually a, a lesson I learned early in marriage. And although I don't usually dispense very advice for obvious reasons, uh, I'm going to dispense some advice here. I'm going to say, the sooner you realize that you cannot change the way that your spouse feels the better. Trust me, I try. It turns out you can't use logic, you can't use reason to explain to someone why they feel wrongly. If your spouse is upset about something, Trying to lead them logically through the process of reverse their emotions—that is futile. You should give up on that immediately. Uh, you can't change the way people feel. They feel the way they feel for a reason. You can empathize. You can try to understand. All of those kinds of things, but you cannot change the reaction. Our hearts don't work that way. You can't just pull a switch and feel different. But it's not as hopeless as it may seem. You're not forced to feel the way that we feel forever. There is a way that feeling changes, but we feel the way that we feel because of what we experience, because of what we uh, have seen, because of what we know. Sometimes we start to feel differently as we come to know. So knowing more and understanding more can change the way we feel, although it doesn't happen overnight. As we're reading through the book of Romans, and especially as we're studying these difficult chapters, 9, 10, and 11, one thing I hope it comes across clearly is that the Apostle Paul, whatever you've he heard, whatever you he might think, the Apostle Paul is a man of passion. A man with deep feelings or concerns that drive him. A man with not just anxiety, but anguish, deep feelings. But his feelings are not always accessible to us. The things that, that make him worry, and, and even more so, the things he delights in, the things that cause him joy, sometimes it's hard for us to enter into that joy. I understand why Paul is as excited about the stuff that excites him as he is. As I said, I can't change the way you feel, but as we come to know more of the way that, that Paul thinks about these things, what, Paul's doing, what Paul has seen, that might change the way we feel. And it might give us the ability to feel the way he does. about that he's writing. in chapter 9, Paul continues to prove the implication of one fact, that the Messiah has come, that the King of Israel, the one who was promised for generations, the one that they were waiting on, he's arrived. But instead of cheering, instead of winding up behind him and confessing him as Lord, the vast majority of Paul's fellow Israelites seem to be rejecting him, turning their backs, on uh, the Messiah. And that reality, witnessing that, the presentation of that has led Paul to figure what it mean? What does it mean about the plan of God? How do I explain what's going on? And as always, in the book of Romans, he does this through a series of questions, which he then engages with and answers. And, and here the question that, that he begins with is the question of God's rejection of his people. Israel is rejecting the Messiah. Does that mean that God has rejected his people? Is that what's going on here? Paul says, of course not. Of course not. That's obviously not what's happening. And he uses himself as an example. It can't be the case that God has rejected his people because I'm one of them. I myself am a Jew, he says. He gives his pedigree. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. One of Abraham's offspring is C, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul himself is evidence that God has not rejected Israel. And so are all of the other apostles. So are all of the other heroes of the faith in that early generation. The, the early church is a Jewish church. So it's inconceivable that God has rejected Israel. There's another point that Paul makes, and this builds on something that he talked about already in Romans 9, which is, you have to be careful about what you mean when you say Israel, because what Paul means by Israel changes sometimes. Sometimes when he uses the word Israel, he seems to be referring to the sort of ethnic nation, the the people in a, a sort of, not a political sense necessarily, but like a familial sense. But other times, he talks about Israel, and he's talking about something else. He's talking about the spiritual community. In Romans 9, he said, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. More complicated than that, in a spiritual sense, he says, Israel is not, to use Paul's words, the children of the flesh, but the children of the promise. That's the distinction that Paul is making in our text as well, in verse 2. And God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Reintroducing that foreknowledge that we talked about in Romans 8. So things going to get a little interesting, a little complicated, because earlier Paul made a contrast, you remember in Romans 9, when he said the Gentiles obtained what they never chased after. But Israel chafed after righteousness and did not obtain it, because they sought it by works and not by grace. That makes it sound as if all of Israel is condemned and all the Gentiles are saved. But it's actually not the case. Here he, he illustrates that the breakdown is a little bit different. Look at Paul's words here. It he says, What did Israel fa- fail to obtain what it was seeking? As if he were making the same point he's already made. But then, listen to what he says, in verse 7. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hard So, within Israel as the nation, he's distinguishing now between the, the elect and the rest in order to illustrate that what's happening to Israel is not, the Israel being written up. It's not that God has turned his back on Israel, but rather that not all who are technically Israel are spiritually Israel. There's a difference. So he left, the it, and the rest were hard. Touched on hardening before, we'll have to dig more deeply into that Later as Romans 11 progresses. But for now, I just want you to take a look at two, because he quotes two Old Testament passages related to this idea of pardoning. One is from Isaiah, whose ministry we talked about last time. And the other is from a Psalm of David, which you should recognize because it comes from Psalm 69, which is the Psalm we looked at a couple of weeks ago in our 10th anniversary sermon. Those words. The quotes are words, remember, that are in the voice of Christ. Condemnations that are spoken in Psalm 69 are pressed to the enemies of Christ. Those who reject Christ are hardened in this way. Remember, the, the very same gospel that makes Jesus the cornerstone for those who believe also results in, in his becoming a subtle those who reject him, those who cast him aside. So in Isaiah, we read God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And then David says, Let their table look a snare and a trap, stumbling block, and a the retribution Their eyes are darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This hardening. It's a consequence of sin. It presupposes their sinfulness. Uh, you might think of it this way. When God hardens someone against confirming them in their rebellion, he's not forcing rebellion on them. So when the Bible talks about hardening, it's not people who otherwise would have accepted Christ, but God hardened them so that they couldn't do it. Rather, people who are already in their sinfulness rejecting Christ are confirmed in that rebellion essentially, even more of what they desire and they want. That's the character of the parliament that Paul is talking about. We'll see that more as, as we get into it. But, but really, what we need to do before that is spend some time with the power of life. Because Paul quotes once more the story of a prophet. He's already relevant to the prophets in this discourse, but now he does something to and he goes to the life of Elijah, who was probably the greatest of all the prophets, although he did not write. He did not leave us a book. We do have historical accounts of his ministry, and this example of Elijah is meant to teach us something about what God is doing in Paul's day. Elijah was a great prophet, but... We actually find him in the passage that Paul is referring to at the low point, where his (coughs) natural pessimism has come about. This is in First Kings chapter 19. In chapter 19, Elijah is already kind of riding the the wave of a remarkable minister. His, this one prophet of God who stood up against all the prophets of Baal. Oh, remember the story. They set up two altars and the prophets and the priests of Baal try to fall down fire from heaven to consume their altar and they can't do it. And over the course of the day Elijah, uh, waxing strong, starts to give them sarcastic encouragement. He starts giving them tips on how they might get through of Baal. Giving them advice on what they ought to do and all of it He's mocking their efforts to make this non existent God send down the fire. And then he turns to his own altar once they've given up, and he has it doused in water to make catching fire impossible. And then he prays to the Lord, and fire comes down to and consumes him. And in the face of that evidence, that triumph, he turns to the people of Israel, who up to this moment, Despite the fact that they were the people of Israel, they were basically the priests of Baal. They were listening to the priests of Baal, and in that moment, the prophet calls them to repent and turn to the priests of Baal they do. Now, we might imagine that the, the man responsible for that would go on to basically rule the human. And if you were capable of doing what Elijah did, if you could stop the rain indefinitely if you could call down fire from heaven, my guess is not a lot of people would get in your way. If people would start deferring to you. Right, your life after that would just be how ever after, but that's not what happens. Elijah finds out that the queen is unhappy and would like to have you killed. And so you hear that and you think, like, okay, well I guess fire can consume her. No, Elijah went into hide it. Went into hiding. And in his hiding, he complains to God about Israel. He lays a charge against Israel. God, let's just look at what they've done. They're all idolaters. They don't worship you. they kill your prophets. They're trying to kill me. And I'm the very last one. Paul points to this example, I think, because it illustrates an emotion he's really. We talk a lot about how the apostle Peter is more relatable. And Peter, one of his friends, just says whatever he's feeling without thinking about it. He's someone that you can really relate to. Paul, oh, who's so cerebral, maybe less so. I think Elijah is, is one of those Peter types. I find him very relatable because after his greatest triumph, he enters into a fit of depression. When he called down fire to consume the altar, he suddenly doesn't believe it's possible to overcome the the, the desire of the need that you have to do that. But what should have seemed impossible was possible for him, and what should seem easy defeats me. I don't know about you, but I find that very believable. So by lowest moments, and I suppose that some years ago, you can look back on okay, the things that God has done in your life, amazing things. And, and think in comparison to that, this shouldn't be a problem. But as you're thinking it, you're curled up in a fetal position. It's like, what was I mean in one left? God. Good job Look what you did. Look what you did. How is your church going to survive? You just got to and then God answers. And the strength and the contrast of that answer is incredible. Clive says, God, I'm a long survivor. And God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not been for me today. You think you're alone? I've got to a whole tribe, a whole army that I have kept for myself. Now, you might look back at that and think, oh, 7,000 doesn't seem like much. It's worked worth the plus. Compared to the 12th, the Christ began with 7,000 followers. It's a remarkable statement. The light is not far from being alone. There are 7,000 times as many faithful people in the kingdom as he thought the was. He has not been manly. God has been. But more important than the number is the way that God describes this. He doesn't say, Elijah, you're not alone. There's actually 7,000 other people who have also not bowed Baal. He says there are 7,000 I have kept for myself. So God's not pointing out how admirable 7,000 are. God saying, I have kept them for myself. I have reserved them. I have done this. I am sure that they are there. Why is that a big deal? Because there would have been none if God had not kept them. There would have been none, including Elijah, if God had not kept them for himself. That's the point of the story. That's the reason why Paul finds that inspiring. Because his concern as he looks at Israel is that they're not believing, they're not turning to Christ in love. What's going on? Has God rejected his people? No, of course he hasn't, Paul tells himself. He finds comfort in the fact that sometimes this is how God saves. It seems as if the hope is being extinguished God keeps for himself a people. A remnant, Paul says, was chosen by grace. That remnant isn't bad news. That remnant is the hope that salvation is by grace and not by works. The remnant is what makes Paul feel hopeful. Paul oh, gets excited, he feels joy at the thought that in his time there is a remnant that has been chosen by grace. race. He says it in verse 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. He's saying, essentially, in the same way that God preserved the nation of Israel in Elijah's day, by keeping a remnant for himself, I believe he is keeping a remnant today. Which means there is hope for the future both the spiritual of Israel and the ultimate Israel. Because the Israel that Paul is concerned about in his day can trace its faith back to 7,000 the God gives him that faithfulness, that faithfulness. That's why it's not a If record. of it's then it might be brought to the fullness. The Greek phrase here that's translated it's a remnant chosen by grace. It's Leda, and Kartas. It's a remnant according to the election of grace. If you were to translate that kind of word, a remnant according to the election of grace. Here's where we start feeling a little bit differently than Paul does about these concepts. Because when we hear the word remnant, hope is not a post-marche. use a word like remnant. Oh, don't worry, there's a remnant left. Remnant sounds like residue. Remnant sounds like, like just a little handful. It's not a It's more pessimistic. It has connotations of the apocalypse. You know, remnant means there's hardly any left. Just a handful. Just some lone survivors. In other words, the emotional content that we attach to that word is the feeling that Elijah had when he complained about being the last one alone survivor. That's what we think, that's what we associate the remnant with. Revenant. Revenant, Paul actually uses the word and contrasts that way of feeling. And the remnant is what, not what leads to the world's medium all alone. The remnant is what assures us that we're not alone. There is hope. God is not for himself. Remnant doesn't mean we're doomed. It means there's hope for the future. We tend to tell ourselves these days that good ideas survive over the course of time uh, because of merit. Bad ideas fall out of favor because they were bad ideas. And so we imagine that, that our sensibility... Has been shaped over time to be kind of the most enlightened way of seeing things in all of human history. Everyone who came before us is kind of backwards and weird and believed all sorts of strange things because all these bad ideas that they helped you were still in circulation, whereas we kind of benefit from the fact that so many bad ideas have gone into dust dustbin of history. Ideas survive based on merits, so the good ones that they endure. The ideas that work the hardest, the ideas that are the smartest to win out. Paul here is pointing to a different way of seeing this. The remnant model is a little bit different than the survival of The remnant model of God turns it upside down. The remnant survives not because of merit, the remnant survives because God preserves it. The truth endures, not because it's the truth, the truth endures because God preserves it. Do you think about that? And that sounds pessimistic to you? It sounds pessimistic that uh, God has to preserve these things in order for them to survive? Uh, well, it's probably because we're still holding on to the idea that, that, that things that are good in and of themselves are guaranteed to last. Ideas that are bad guaranteed to fall by the wayside. In reality, nothing like that is guaranteed. We're surrounded by bad ideas that have, have overruled good ones. the lesson of human moral endeavor teaches us anything, it's Teaching us what the wisdom literature says are the righteous, are righteous, and are not. And that the wicked are wicked. That there is no, in a small and moral correspondence, between worthiness and outcome. So that if the truth is to endure, if the faithful are to persist in faith, there is only one way for that to happen. And it's with God. That's kind of remnant of this cause for hope. There's the only reason that there's any hope for any of us is that God is His salvation is not by works, it's by grace. The phrase that uh, Paul uses in the title chosen by grace, those two ideas come together: chosenness and grace. Grace is the word of God, chosenness. As well. So that not only does remnant mean hope and not despair, but for Paul, election means hope too. And chosenness means hope. Paul's hope is aimed into the fact that there's a remnant that is chosen by grace. In other words, God has kept them for himself, which is all election really means. It's all we mean when we say chosen this. Again, people hear that word, election, and have the opposite emotional reaction, just as we do with pregnant. We don't feel about that, that word the way that Paul us. Paul sees it that, as a comfort. We try to avoid using language like that are going to comfort. We don't worry about that stuff. But, for the, ironically, for Paul, this is the source of comfort. This yeah. is the source of hope. And I think it's worth trying to understand how that can be. Whether or not there's hope for those Paul loves it's not in on the works. He understands that whether or not there is hope for them depends on the works, but God's mercy. He trusts in divine mercy a lot more than he trusts in new works. That's why even the idea of the lecture is hopeful. That even though he sees The the, the people he cares for rejecting the Messiah, but maybe that's not the final word, the final decision. Maybe Christ will come, the Spirit will quicken even those things, so that he can hold out hope for people that we would write off as impossible cases. Because he understands salvation is not by work, it's not by merit, it's by mercy. And that means there's hope. For people who see hopeless, that's caused some of it. The question is, why are our hearts such being charged heart? Why do the things that bring Him such joy and comfort not have the same effect on us? It's because we don't know what He knows. More specifically, He's trying to tell us what He knows, but He's not always listening. He's not always taking it on A lot of times we come to a a part of the Bible like this, we say, Well, this is hard teaching. This is hard to understand, it's hard to get your mind around. You say that, and it sounds really pious to admit that, but we say it so that we can close the book. This is really hard, and we go no further. This is quite mysterious, and I don't even want to understand the hard to explain. Right? So it's a way to not listen. The knowledge that he's trying to give us. I acknowledge these are hard things. Like when I talk to a fellow pastors and, and you compare, like what are you preaching on? Oh, I'm preaching on the Gospel of Challenge Chapter 3. Good for you. What are you preaching on? Probably is the They're like, oh, cool. At least it's not the book of Revelation. Something like that. You know. This is hard stuff. I freely admit that. What I want to suggest is that the hardest parts of the Bible make the most sense in the hardest parts of your life. The hardest parts of the Bible make the most sense in the hardest parts of your life. And if it's not making sense, if you're not feeling the way Paul feels about it, it may just be that you haven't gotten there yet in life. You haven't gotten to the point where you actually need these things. When you feel confident and secure and strong, you hear words like election and remnant and then you say solutions no problem nobody has. This is stuff I don't even think about or worry about. You know what? You're right. You're right in When someone throws you a lifeline and you're standing on the boat, there's something ridiculous about that. It's only how I'm gonna lash you with a rope. But when you're in the water, that changes. If the hard stuff doesn't speak to you, we don't speak about it the way Paul does, it may just be that we think we're on the boat, and we don't realize we're the longer. We just haven't recognized our true circumstances. If Paul had thought that Israel, left to its own devices, left to its own strength, would well, have choose the Messiah, then he would not call all this talk of election and race and of stuff. He thought it was as simple as Israel, just doing the right thing, recognizing the obvious choice. He wouldn't need all this stuff, and there would be no choice. Nobody wants to hear this stuff when they a the human effort But when you realize it's not enough, when you see what? the left realizes Israel will turn its back on the Messiah every time. So will you. So will everyone you care about and everyone you love. When you recognize that, then suddenly you can't get enough of grace. You can't hear enough about grace. Once you know that, then the idea that God keeps us working himself isn't a, a hard mystery. It's a comfort and it's a joy because it means that we can do exactly what I was talking about earlier what it is to that cross and for everything that is worth That changes the way that we feel. It makes things that might have seemed difficult a source of comfort and hope. It makes the cross of Christ which seems like such an offense for those who do not feel the need for that lifeline. It makes that cross lifeline. <laughs>